Jenna. And I'm Sam. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hi everybody and welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Today we have Wendy Rice with us. She is the head keeper of the Africa Department and she has been with the Cincinnati Zoo for seven years now. Welcome Wendy. Hey, thank you for having me. How are you? I am doing very good. Very good, considering. Considering everything. Yes, yeah. if you're listening to this right now, we are in mid-March. I am sure you're probably at home, as are most people, with what's going on with uh, the COVID virus and staying safe. So we hope, whether you're listening to this now or in a few months, um, that you are keeping happy and healthy with your friends and family. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sam mentioned that Wendy is the head keeper in the Africa department, so that makes her also my coworker and good friend. And I'm excited to have her tell you guys about John and Imani, our African lions, who are a huge hit, very popular here at the Cincinnati Zoo. And she has been with them since day one and knows so much about them as their primary trainer and does such a good job with them. So we're going to tell you guys all about our lions, and uh, we have our our line expert here with us. <laughs> so you guys um, have the, we'll hear the best of the best about our lions. Oh, thanks. So Wendy, how did you get involved with lions? Did you, you know, have you always been working with lions? Did you, you know, work your way in with a different animal? What was your journey to um, start to work with these big cats? Um, yeah, it's interesting actually. When I started at the Cincinnati Zoo, I was hired on at the Cat Ambassador Program. So if you're familiar with that, that's our cheetah show, essentially. You get to see our cats run in that show yard and reach top speeds, and you're working with some of the smaller cats. Um, we have a red river hog, all kind of hands-on animals. And at the time when I took the job, I was like kind of psyched that there was this component of none of these animals can kill me, yay! <laughs> Which, in our industry, like, yeah, that's, that, that is one of the ways you divide animals up. And um, so I was excited to be working with hands-on stuff. And then when I got here and got hired on, they mentioned, by the way, we're in the process of building this new Africa department. Uh, the lions are going to be joining the Africa department, and we don't have anyone to take care of them yet, so that will be your responsibility. And it was like, oh, okay. Didn't, didn't necessarily even know I was signing up for it at the time. Um, but once I got down there and started working with them, I totally fell in love with them. And especially being able to be here with them from day one and be part of their journey and get to know them. Um, so about a year or so later, when their care was transitioning to a new team, I ended up leaving the Cat Ambassador program so that I could stay with them because I was just so enamored with them and I couldn't imagine my job here not including them. Um, so yeah, so I ended up transitioning with them and got to keep taking care of them, which is nice. Yeah, so if anybody isn't familiar, we had Giraffe Ridge open up and then the lions and so our new Africa department or Africa area um, was done in phases so once we hired full-time people to take care of the whole Africa area that's when Wendy switched and that's when we started working full-time together and I've learned so much about training and lions from Wendy and how to work around dangerous carnivores and I think my favorite part about our lions here is how well trained they are. So can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, I'm sure you had a training background in the cat show, but how did you learn all of that? Yeah, um, so my first paid job was actually at the Memphis Zoo, and there was a keeper I worked with there uh, by the name of Kathy, and she was actually a marine mammal trainer before she and I became coworkers, and she was the very first person that introduced me to training, taught me about training, 
and she was just such an incredible coach and mentor. And I think I was like super fascinated with the fact that it's it's like the closest we can have with animals to language. It's like conveying to them, we, we want you to do this, and if you participate, you get that. And it's a really cool way to build relationships and learn those individuals. And most importantly in our industry, it's how it's a means to an end. Like you, if you want to take better care of animals, you train them to cooperate in their care. And we're starting to figure that out and learn that and develop that in different ways at zoos. Um, so yeah, I, I love, and lions are easy. Lions are super smart and super food motivated animals. So it makes them a little easier. So I don't have quite as difficult of a job as some of the keepers. Um, but yeah, it's tons of fun and something that I'm super passionate about. I love doing it with them. Um, and these guys, I think especially because we've worked together for so long and I kind of have gotten to grow with them as they've been here at the zoo. We just speak that training language really well. So it's, it's neat that they learn very quickly, and very easily. And the cool thing is we have a habitat that's set up where we can demonstrate some of that right there through the glass for our visitors. Um, so hopefully some of our listeners have seen that and experienced it. Yeah, or get to do it again in the future <laughs> whenever we open back up um, because it's such a cool thing to see. And so there's lots I want to talk about wild lions in general, but everyone loves John and Amani, who's been here, especially John. I think he's a close favorite oh, to yeah. Fiona. Um, so why don't we start at the beginning, and I might ask you more training questions later on, but just tell us kind of about, like you mentioned, you started with them from day one, so we, we aren't bringing lions in from the wild. They are coming from other zoos. Can you tell us a little bit about John's background and Amani's background, and then just their story, kind of how they got together once they were both here. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to tell about them. So John actually came to us from the National Zoo in Washington, DC. And John was one of seven siblings all born at the same time. So there were two females that got pregnant there. One had a litter of three, one had a litter of four, and they called them the sensational seven. So <laughs> John was born into this really big family unit. He had six siblings, mom, auntie, his dad, um, all these lions hanging out together and as they got older and as sexual maturity kicked in it became obvious that they had to be kind of rehomed they had to find new places to live so there wouldn't be conflict within that group um, so John's siblings all got paired off and sent to other institutions and John was assigned to come to Cincinnati by himself um, so that was kind of a difficult transition for him at the beginning especially being a social animal uh, we, I don't know, I've compared it to people going off to college and it's like some kids excel and love it and have a great time and some kids kind of struggle with it and it's different and it's hard and they're trying to be independent and they don't quite know how to do that. John was more of that kid. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when he got here, he had to be like the only cat for a little while and he was in this new place with these new keepers and he didn't really have familiarity with anything and it was um, a difficult time for him. And keeper staff were there. We literally spent the night here at the zoo to be with him to try to encourage him and make him feel comfortable and better about things. Um, but fortunately, the only thing that seemed to matter and change things was when Amani arrived. <laughs> so Amani has a totally different background. Um, Amani came to us from the St. Louis Zoo, and when Amani was born, she was the only cub in her litter to survive. And sometimes when that happens, even in the wild, if there's only one cub nursing, the mother's milk will dry up. It's just not enough stimulation for her to keep producing milk. Um, so in the wild, a lot of times that single cub will die. But if you're in captivity and you have the help of human care teams, 
um, we can supplement or we can hand pull that animal, or sorry, we can pull that animal and hand raise them and get them through that difficult transition period while they're still on milk. Um, so that's what happened with Amani. Amani was being raised by people for the first six months of her life. And then she transitioned back into becoming part of a lion pride. So Amani has this cool kind of like one foot in each world, kind of like Fiona does. Yeah. Where she has familiarity with people, comfort with people, lots of good positive associations. But we got her back with other lions quick enough that she knows how to be a lion too. Um, so Amani was assigned to be John's breeding partner. So she was sent here to Cincinnati. And from the minute she uncrated and came into the building that day, I remember this, it was like a flip switch. Like, all of a sudden, John was, like, puffing out his chest Aww. and strutting around like big man on campus. And there's a girl to impress. He's like, oh, let me show you around. You're going to love this place. Um, but it was cool seeing that switch and just knowing, like, that's what they need. They, they're social animals. They need to be with other lions. Uh, so that was uh, that was really the key. That was all John needed to start feeling comfortable and happy here. And the two are great. They're very yin and yang to each other. They're, um, they balance each other really well. So how long was it after John and Monty got together that Cubs came into the picture? Oh, it was super quick. There was, <laughs> there was not much of like an old-fashioned courtship period. Um, and that was some of that was deliberate on our part. So before we introduced them one-on-one -on -one sharing space, we had set up a howdy setup where they're able to see each other, smell each other, but they're not quite sharing space. And we monitored their interactions, and um, we also monitored Imani's um, cycle, her reproductive cycle. And so based on positive feedback from her and John, both cats indicating, like, I like this cat, I want to spend time with this cat, we want to be together, and then syncing it up with her most um, receptive time of the month, we ended up putting them together, and they were breeding, like, within hours. So <laughs> it wasn't uh, too much longer after that uh, that the breeding stopped, which is usually a good indication that it was successful, like mission accomplished. And four months after that, the, the cubs were here. So, yeah, they, they took that breeding recommendation part to heart. They, they got it done pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. The animals, they know what's going on. Yeah. They just know, okay, we can be done now. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then Imani's like, okay, I can do this. And then four months later, so their gestation is four months, yeah. uh, we had three cubs. And yeah. that was so much fun. And... I love the story about John being introduced to them. Oh, yeah. Will you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so in the wild, the mother will actually leave the pride and kind of go off and be by herself and have those cubs. And she keeps them away from the group for anywhere from like 10 weeks or so, sometimes a little older, sometimes a little younger. Um, she just needs that time with them to just be a mom, let them grow a little bigger and stronger before they have to hang with the pride and keep up with the pride. Um, so to simulate that in captivity, we also have Imani separated. She got privacy away from John. She got to have the cubs have her alone time and not have to worry about John during those times. Um, so then when it was time for John to meet the cubs and be, become, become dad to them, um, it was so <laughs> it was beautiful to watch. It's like he had very good instincts. Um, we put them in together. Imani was very in his face the entire time. She made it very clear, like, how John was allowed to interact with these guys, how he was not allowed. Um, she would step in. If a cub vocalized even, she was smacking John and growling and being a really good mother. Yeah, very good, good mom. Yeah, good and protective mom. 
Um, so if anything, poor John kind of learned to be afraid of the cups no, initially. Because no. <laughs> yeah. every time he would interact with them, if it wasn't a perfect interaction, Amani would come after him and put him in his place. Um, so a lot of times he would hop up on the bench where the cubs couldn't get to and kind of watch from there. But they loved his mane. They just like his mane was like the coolest toy ever. He <laughs> would literally run up to him and pull chunks of it out. He just had to lay there and take it because <laughs> if he fought back at all or anything, Imani was on him. Um, so yeah, it was it was really cool to watch them work as a little family unit and have their little language and for John to understand what his role was and for Imani to like teach him very, very in very plain terms, very black and white, here's what you are and are not allowed to do with these guys. Um, so yeah, that was a really cool time to be their keeper. I know one of my favorite memories, and this is when I was still not even associated with the zoo, I was still a guest coming in, you know, and seeing the lions and the cubs is when they started to learn how to climb trees oh, <laughs> out yes. in their yard. That was an experience for everybody. Isn't it cool? You would never think that, you don't hear about lions climbing trees very often. And when I was lucky enough to go to Africa, I saw lions in trees and it was the coolest thing. But that brings up a really good point. Today, in mid-March, we actually just opened up our habitat to the lions after doing a big renovation. And um, Wendy was able to help come up with some ideas and make it a better space for our lions. And one of our features is the ability for the lions to climb up into this new enrichment tree and nap way up high. So. Uh, Let's tell them a little bit about the new changes we made in yeah. Habitat. Um, so the, the tree thing, like Jenna pointed out, yeah, you don't think of lions spending much time in trees, but they do. They get up there, and one of the reasons for it is it gives them a really good vantage point to look for prey. So it's functional, and it's just a comfy place to relax. You can kind of let your guard down a little bit because they're up there, and it's not like anyone's really sneaking up on you. Right. Um, so yes, we've got this cool new enrichment tree that we'll be able to hang different enrichment items from, possibly carcasses for feeds. Um, we can hang those from different limbs and the cats have the ability to go up into that tree and just have a whole new view. Like they're just, you know, 18 feet higher than they would have been. <laughs> somewhere um, around there <laughs> yeah they're, they're much higher up so that they can just see better they can see the savannah animals the giraffe they can see into the way out into the cheetah yard next door um and we've also got this new kind of pride rock feature that's set up so this big giant piece of rock work that's kind of jutting out right towards public viewing actually so guests will be pretty much on eye level with the cats if they're up on that rock space hanging out um, and uh, some got brand new logs in there, big giant logs for them to scratch and hang out on. That was Amani's first go-to. She was like, new logs, and just putting her claws out and ripping into the yes. log. It was so cool, and she really liked the Pride Rock, too. Yeah. She was spending yeah. a lot of time on there this morning. We're excited. Nothing's worse than, like, putting all this plan and effort and time into, like, <laughs> enrichment that you think an animal's going to love, and then they're like, meh. Yeah, so we're, we were very encouraged by what we saw today. I think they're going to love it. The enrichment tree is great because you can imagine toys for lions have to be very sturdy and durable and heavy. Mm -hmm. And this will allow us to have a pulley system that will hang these toys for us so the lions can bat them around and they won't necessarily roll over the habitat and end up in the water and, and just be a really good opportunity for us to give them novel ways of presenting these toys and uh, different ways for the lions to interact with them and just kind of make it easier on keepers so that we can do it even more often than we already do. And I, like Wendy mentioned, a carcass feed is really great for our social carnivores and um, in the wild 
they would be hunting. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about their favorite prey? Who does the hunting? How does all of that yeah. work? Um, so lions are completely unique and different from other cats in that they're the only truly social felines that exist. So they're the only cats that live in groups and they are interdependent on each other and they survive because of that interdependence in these groups. Um, and in the wild, the females are responsible for the hunting, which is pretty cool. It's the girls who are getting it done and kind of bringing home the bacon for the family. Um, so yeah, they go out and they do these coordinated hunts and they work as a team and right even down to like that tufted tail that lions have that that's also individual to them. Um, if they're kind of hunkered down tall grasses hiding, they can communicate their position to each other by flicking that tufted tail up in the air, kind of like waving a little signal flag. So it's very cool. You can tell they're, they're designed to do this. Um, even though they try their very best, they're not terribly successful. They're only succeeding about 10% of the time that they go out and hunt. So 90% of the time they come up empty-handed. Um, but lions are big, and there are a lot of them. So they're kind of the bullies of the savannah. So they make use of kleptoparasitism. So rude. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> so that means we find a different carnivore, like a cheetah or a painted dog, who is more successful at hunting. We wait for them to make a kill, and we steal it because we're bigger and mm. we're jerks. And we can kinda, but it's a successful strategy. It feeds them. It takes care of them. And, um, yeah, super effective. So, yeah, in the wild, the females are doing all of the hunting for the group. Um, primarily, they prey on large hoofstock. So zebra, wildebeest, larger antelope species, things like that. And then the smaller the pride, probably they'll hunt smaller animals if they have to, if they're on their own or a mother hunting for her cubs. And then males, they'll go off in bachelor groups at a certain age and they will hunt. Yes. Males will hunt, but females, yeah, (laughs) females usually do most of the work. Right. And it's always been my understanding because they're a little bit more agile, smaller, quicker, but the males also have a really important role. So while the females are out hunting and bringing back the food, can you tell us about the males and what they're responsible for? Yeah. So once a male has established himself as like the dominant male, the alpha male of a pride, and he holds ownership over that pride, he's responsible for maintaining their territory um, and breeding, which is kind of a sweet deal. <laughs> he, he defends them from like, you know, outside threats and things like that. But I mean, Lion King really pretty much got that storyline correct. Yeah. Like, they are fairly accurate in that. Um, something you said about the females reminded me too. Yeah, the scientists have studied females within the prides and especially their roles during the hunt. And it turns out that individual females have very specific roles based oh. on what they're suited to and their physique. So like your faster, skinnier, more uh, maybe like agile females are responsible for chasing and flushing prey items. And then the bigger, stronger females are responsible for the takedowns, tackling, and actually making the kill. That's amazing. I had never yeah. heard yeah. that. That's, that's so cool. That's like fairly new information where they're like, whoa, it's not, it's not random at all. Like it's very, very much this concentrated, very specific effort. And everyone has their part to play, um, which is just cool. You yeah. Know? There's a lot, that, a lot that goes into it to be successful out there. And even then, only 10% of the time they're actually making a kill, so... Yeah, I'm I just like imagine imagining that. like a, a lion soccer team right yeah, now. Like, yeah, All right, you're gonna be a striker. <laughs> exactly. Now, uh, John, hey, you're the goalie. Go right. take care of the house. Like, right. you, go yeah. back. So uh, we don't have, you know, they're they're not on the hunt here right. at the zoo. So what type of food do we feed our lions? Um, so lions are obligate carnivores, which means they they have to survive on meat and only meat and nothing but meat. Even if we wanted them to be on a tofu diet, they can't survive on that. 
Um, so they get a variety of different proteins here at the zoo. Um, they get various beef products. Goat is uh, Imani's favorite by far. John gets whole prey items. He likes rabbit, guinea pig. Um, Imani won't touch that stuff. So weirdly, so funny. yeah, they have very much have like individual preferences and um, things like that. But yeah, it's meat, different kinds all day long. Um, there is a ground meat diet. That is the bulk of their diet that is kind of supplemented with different minerals, nutrients, vitamins, everything that a lion needs. Um, but the carcass feeds are definitely our favorite way to feed the cats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you stop by, you know, you might see a sign out sometimes that we do carcass feedings from time to time where, right. you know, as a guest, you can come in and watch this. Yeah. Yeah, we don't always announce them in advance, but there will always be signage so that if that's something maybe you didn't sign up for seeing today or you have little ones with you and you're not sure how they would take it, you would know what you're walking into and have an opportunity to go visit a different part of the zoo. Um, but the feedback from guests has been overwhelmingly positive, even little kids. They don't seem phased by it. Like, I'll see parents checking in, are you okay? And the kids are like, this is awesome. <laughs> I mean, the, we're not watching them hunt a live animal, right. which I I understand that's exactly what lions need are to eat other animals, but I wouldn't want to watch that. We aren't right. doing that. And it is processed by a butcher a little bit. So we've removed the organs and right. the head and that sort of thing. Right. So it's not quite as traumatizing. Yeah. And I think it truly is something worth seeing and it's yes. great for the lions. So you have to think of it like that too. Yeah. It's a great experience for them. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that the males, their job is to defend the territory and, you know, they're big and bold and they have that giant mane. Yeah. And will you tell us about the purpose of the mane and, yeah. and that sort of thing? Yeah, so lions um, exhibit sexual dimorphism, which means the boys look different from the girls. And they are the only feline species that has that. And it's so very obvious in that beautiful pronounced hairy mane that the boys are rocking. Um, the reason the boys grow the mane and the girls don't is because they have all that extra testosterone. So as some of us out there might be able to relate to, more testosterone means more hair. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> generally, the females seem to be attracted to the males with the darkest, largest manes, scientists have learned. Um, and the, the mane, actually, it's a lot about, like, bluffing and it's a lot of like show and kind of like I'm bigger than I am I'm scarier than I am more threatening than I really am and the best example of it is when John turns around and walks away you will notice how tiny his booty is he's got like the smallest tiniest little rump in the world and if you imagine like that whole mane was shaved down and gone it's like they're not super massive bulky I mean they're just not quite as big as that mane makes them look. Right. Um, so a lot of it is show and bluff and things like that. Um, but functionally, it also protects their neck during fights with each other. It protects their head a little bit. Um, and most importantly, it attracts the ladies. That is the, <laughs> the biggest feature of it, of course. And then what are their updated weights and ages for everyone? Um, let's see. So John is nine years old. His birthday's on August 31st, so he'll be... He'll be hitting a decade this wow. summer. Yep. And he's tipping the scales right around 425 pounds. Um, Imani is a year younger than him. Her birthday is in July, so she'll be turning nine this year. And she weighs in right around 300 pounds. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing. And a lot of times our guests will come to the zoo and comment that John looks way too skinny. Um, John's body condition is actually considered ideal for yes. a cat. And if anything, Imani has like a couple pounds she could stand to lose. <laughs> so comparatively, John looks like 
he's skinny. He shouldn't be that small. Like, no, Amani should just look like that, too. And we're, <laughs> we're working on it. We're not quite there yet, though. Hey, we've got tree climbing now, so we've got the, you know, right, the exercise yeah. routine built in. I should join her. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to jump back in and um, just cover training a little bit more because yeah. we did talk about that a little bit previously, and I just wanted to know, what does that look like with lions, you know, and what's the purpose behind the training that we do with lions? So let's see, like with the lions, the majority of the behaviors that they are trained to perform are things that help us to take better care of them. So we're essentially asking them to participate in their own care. Um, one of the best examples of that, they're voluntarily trained for blood draws from their tail. So we have a little window that we can open behind the scenes and the cats are trained to back up to it and they allow us to pull the tail through. Um, Jenna's actually usually my training partner for this. So Jenna's had quite a lot of lion tail time, <laughs> literally holding a lion by the tail for me while I'm kind of working at the business end, feeding them and getting them into position and holding them steady. Um, so once we have access to that tail, we have it accessed safely into the keeper space. Um, Jenna's then able to work with a vet tech and they can kind of find a vein. They can swab it off with alcohol and they can, can collect blood voluntarily as long as that cat's kind of holding position and just being fed and being kept calm and happy and quiet and it's just a great tool in our arsenal about managing their health and kind of being proactive about things if we suspect that one of them is sick or hormonal balance is off or something like that without stressing them out without having to immobilize them we can simply collect blood on them and get all sorts of good information that helps us take better care of them um, training behaviors like that usually happens slowly over time. You kind of work your way up to that, but it starts real simple, like just having meat at the mesh and feeding them through the mesh and asking them to line their body up, maybe lean into the mesh. And then you can reach through with like some sort of a training stick and start getting them used to being touched or poked or prodded. Um, teach them that, all right, now I need you to lean your body in because I can't reach in there with you. Now I'm going to touch your tail. This is what that feels like. Um, that was the, They're less scared of the needle. I yeah. mean, they're not afraid of the needle at all. It's like, I don't know if I want you touching my tail right now. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, I'm not even hurting you. It's the it's being funny. held part, right, that yeah. they don't love. But yeah. then they eventually, I mean, it just took a little, maybe a couple of weeks, and yeah. they're fantastic. They can leave at any point right. in time, and, and they don't, so they, they choose to participate. But, yeah, it's funny that... They had less of a reaction when we introduced the needle than they did to us touching their tail. Right. It's interesting. It's different from humans. It's not like their reactions are anything like what ours would necessarily be. Um, but yeah, just slowly over time, you're able to shape different behaviors. And it's all about using that food to communicate with the cat. Like, this, yes, this is what I want you to do. This is what I need you to do. Hold still. Sit right there. Lean that hip in. Let me hold your tail. Things like that. And just kind of incrementally over time, you train the behavior to shape it into whatever you need it to be and they're so smart and they work on results it's amazing yeah. how quickly they pick it up if you like gave me a piece of food every time i lean to my right i don't think i'd ever be like oh that's what they want me to do i need to lean to my right the lions get it immediately yeah. it's so impressive it is they've figured it out much more so than humans it seems like humans are harder to train and For reinforce sure. yeah. yeah more complicated i guess I learned at a young age you know if i clean my room then i can have dessert so exactly that concept yep so for those of us, you know, that aren't involved in lion training, you know, are there any other avenues that, you know, we can support to help with, you know, lion conservation in general? Oh, yeah. Or, um, Jenna, there might be a better question, a better way to ask that. Yeah, well, I wanted to say, 
ask you to talk a little bit about lion populations and their conservation status right now. Yeah. Um, and then that might tell us what we can do okay. to help. Yeah, so unfortunately, like so many species out there, lion populations are in decline. They're struggling, and the predominant reasons are because of various conflict with humans. Like, it always kind of comes back to humans, right? Like, we're all getting used to hearing this, whether it's habitat fragmentation and populations of humans spreading into their space. Um, with lions, they have to worry about being poached. They have to worry about um, sharing space with agricultural nomadic people who are out there with their animals just trying to survive themselves. Uh, but if a lion predates on like a goat or a cow or something, a lot of times there's retaliatory killing. So they'll poison a carcass and they'll wipe out an entire pride of lions. So a lot of it is conflict with humans. And a lot of it feels like something that we can't necessarily help with, like from home, sitting on our couch or anything. Um, and, you know, everybody's always asking us to donate. There's all sorts of great things that you can donate money to to help. But the idea that I came up with that I love, that's a little more fun and interactive and, like, kind of gets you in the game a little bit more, um, there's this app called Zooniverse. So you download this app on your phone, and then you can pick various projects, and you're actually helping scientists with their work. So in this particular example, you would be looking at camera trap images, and you're helping them classify camera trap images. So they've got thousands and thousands of photos from any time even a blade of grass moves in front of this camera and triggers it. So they need help sifting through those photos and saying like, all right, which ones actually have animals in them? Okay, of the animal photos, which ones are lions? And can you see a tail? Can you see a face? So it's like this fun little app that you log on and you're helping sift through photos. And if you're an animal nerd, which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, it's kind of fun. It's like it's a little bit like the Pokemon Go thing where like you're scrolling through photos and one day you're like, oh my god, there's a lion. It's my first lion pick. And then the next day you might see a dick dick or a warthog. Um, but it's cool and it's something you're doing in real time to help researchers right now kind of just sift through all the data that they have so that they can make sense of it and start to like put together actual information that will help us manage these species better in the wild. Um, so I would recommend the app Zooniverse and specifically Snapshot Ruaha. That's awesome. one that you should see lions on. That's what you're interested yeah. in. Ruaha is one of the uh, conservation projects that we actually support here right. through the zoo. <laughs> but I think that's the perfect what can I do because right now in March 2020, this is the craziest time and a lot of people are doing social distancing and staying at home and if you need something to do and you want to watch or look at animals in the wild and actually make a difference and help these researchers and conservationists figure out where lions are living, their populations. I'm sure they can identify them when they see them often enough. They can tell which is which. Like, mm -hmm. And you can help with that. That's such a good what can I do for this podcast. And right now in these times, and I just love that. So yeah. I think that's a great one. And something that, again, you can do on your couch. Yeah, there's <laughs> no limit. You can do one photo. You can do 100,000 photos. Exactly. You know, it, you just, it's a great way just to burn time exactly. you know, when you have a few minutes to spare. Oh, my gosh. What if we helped solve, not necessarily solve, but get closer to, you know, a really big difference in the lives of lion researchers and scientists right. while we're all stuck inside. Exactly. Like, we can make yeah. one thing better <laughs> while something else isn't so great at the time. Yeah. So. And it's, like, freakishly addictive, too, once you get into it. And, and if you're not sure, if you're, like, not confident, like, I don't know what 
animals look like or if I'd be able to do that, there's a really cool tutorial it walks you through and it even has a guide. Like it's like animal common animals from behind so it'll literally show you what different hoofstock species look from behind that's good because even as an africa zookeeper there are so many types of antelope right. and i definitely couldn't name them all right. looking at them or anything so yeah i would worry like are we are we telling researchers the wrong thing right. like are somebody calling us a warthog and it's a thompson gazelle yeah, i don't no. know but no they ask for you to do your best and what happens is once you sift through the photos it's not like if you misidentify something, it gets thrown away into eternity. It just gets kind of stored into a file that they can then go back and be like, okay, I was really focusing on warthog images. Based on all the feedback I got from people, most of these images are going to be warthogs, and it helps them narrow it down. It helps them save so much time. And if you are on there with the best of intentions, you're only helping the program. You don't have to be perfect. Like, just do your best, and it's going to make a difference. It's it's a drop in the bucket, but, like, it all adds yeah, up. Exactly. Yeah, it really does. Do you think this is something little kids could also help with? Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially, like, if an adult's kind of with them, kind yeah. of coaching them through it. Or, or kids might pick it up quicker, honestly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they might figure it out before some of the adults. Yeah, but. might as well learn a little, little bit about animals while you're yeah. off from school, right? And, and how to identify them and right. a new species you may have never heard of or seen before. Yeah. So... Cool. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks again for listening. That was Wendy Rice, head keeper of our Africa department, and you were listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales.